Welcome. Thanks for tuning in. I'll have to do it in English, though. Ah, oh, that's too bad. I really had everything prepared in Dutch. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm totally stressed out. <laughs> okay. No, so uh, first of all, uh, of course, I really want to thank you for being the first. I'm not sure if you've seen, but you're literally my second podcast in my wow. whole channel. <laughs> wow. Good. Glad so to be here. So Glad much. to help. <laughs> and I think the first question I always like to ask is, you know, what what inspired you to just enter this field and what sort of your dream contribution to the world just as a small starting question oh those are great questions um my entrance to the field the true answer is serendipitous which is um when i first went off to university i stumbled into a psychology class i wasn't a major in psychology i just stumbled into one and um it really opened up my mind i i didn't know in a way that you could study psychology as a field. I, yeah. it, it just somehow never crossed my mind. I thought you had to like study accounting or like, <laughs> the <laughs> so, hard stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. It was just, that was really an opener for me. And so then I just took more and more and more classes. And then I think the real passion kicked in like with you, I think when I realized when it really dawned on me, how many hours per day and then how much percentage per week is spent working and how if, if you could make that better, then you're like making people's lives better. And I, I think that for me, and I think for you, that is almost a calling, yeah. but like, it wouldn't be right to say it started there. To yeah. be honest, that's something that developed over many years and really, frankly, more like decades. Because one last thing I'd say about this is, for a long time, I felt I was working for the companies. I really did. I was called industrial psychologist, which kind of meant, you know, that is, that's like, how do you hire? So you get the right fit. How do you pay people to motivate them? And so the idea that now I feel like I'm doing it more for the humanistic reasons that just so helps the organizations thrive. That's pretty new for me. It's more as a consequence instead of as a starting point. I believe deeply that that's how it works, but it probably took me 20 years of thinking to get my head straight around that. Yeah. Yeah. And what made you, because psychology is super broad field, right? It could also be, my sister is a psychologist, so she has her own practice, but you transformed it to the work field. Was that a conscious journey or just also happened along the way? the, The serendipitous part of that was this class that I stumbled into, there was somebody named Rick Jacobs and he was the professor and he, I, like I said, he inspired me and I went to him after the class was done. The class was over and I said, I want your life. <laughs> Give it to me. Like, what do you mean? That's the whole thing. I want to like come to work and teach this stuff. I want to dress the way that you dress. I want your wife or your kids. <laughs> so I got to say, he became the most important mentor because he essentially opened his life and my life. Because like, for example, as an undergraduate student, you know, 19 years old, he brought me into something called the PhD practicum, which was a place where the PhD students gathered and analyzed data. And I was the only boy, you know, I was the only undergrad in there. And um, they treated me kind of badly, to be honest, because it was weird that I was in there and it kind of diminished them, I think, somehow. Not senior I, enough or something. Yeah, yeah. 
but it helped me so much to like work with real data and collect data and design surveys. And so that meant that when it was time to go to grad school, I had a big leg up because I'd already done all that stuff. Yeah. So I don't know. I can't say enough good things about this, this guy, Rick Jacobs, but anyway, it is a bit serendipity. This whole thing of life. A lot of times it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's less strategic for me and more an unfolding, I think. I'm always, the people that know me, I think they already are becoming fed up with me talking about the universe <laughs> and the universe giving you opportunities yeah. and follow your heart yeah. and that kind of mushy stuff. But I yeah. definitely believe in what you call serendipity as well. It just happens that way sometimes. Yeah. There's also that book called Obliquity, which is, um, it's an important concept where sometimes the quickest way to get to your outcome is not the quickest way to get to your outcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let so, alone the best way. <laughs> the more you try to, for example, the more a firm, an organization tries to make money. Yeah, yeah exactly. The less inspired people are, so the less likely they are to make money. <laughs> <laughs> but then we love just karma, right? <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. It's true. And speaking of serendipity, that's a nice bridge of how I got introduced to your work. So I think it was end of 2018. So I was working with Ronstadt and somebody tipped me, hey, you know, we have this book called Alive at Work. And I think most of the senior managers were doing the London Business School leadership that's training. Right. That's right. And they, they shared me your book and I'm a pretty critical person. So I thought, okay, let's read this. But I immediately fell in love. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And for me, the reason I fell in love is because it was super nice to just have the science backing up sort of what my gut feeling was telling me. Yeah. Um, but before I go to the, there was one, one thing that really changed um, the perspective on having an impact. And uh, I'm thinking before I go too much into detail, maybe we should just uh, explain a little to the listeners why you wrote a live work and what to you is the reason why you wrote it. Sure. Well, what excites me the most about Alive at Work was stumbling on that little bit of neuroscience. And it's just because I'm, I am a psychologist and not a real doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had never heard about this part of the brain. And as I started reading this book called Affective Neuroscience by Yak Pengsep, it changed my life again. You know, that was something, again, I, I don't even know exactly why I was reading it, but when I started to understand these emotions of like enthusiasm and zest and excitement that they emerge not only out of a certain part of the brain, but because of a certain drug, you know, and by the way, listeners, I don't think we have it all figured out. You know, <laughs> yes, Dan, like, come on. We have all the answers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know we don't. I know we don't. And that's important, actually. It is, it is really important to remember that we are children. We're in our infancy in terms of our knowledge about the brain and so on. But that said, they can very reliably track not only that this part of the brain gets stimulated with fMRIs, but also that it gives off this, you know, this drug. Yeah. <laughs> So dopamine is a neurotransmitter and it does make us feel a certain way. And it just so happens that that way is what organizations need today. And boy, that just connects so nicely with what I was saying a little while ago. That was like a supercharge in my brain that if leaders can learn to activate that part of the brain, then people feel more alive. They feel more energized and more resilient and more enthusiastic. 
And that's great. That's really, again, the most important thing to me. But it's exactly what organizations need to compete because they need people that are willing to be proactive yep. and try new things. And they need the ability to not tell people what to do, but to let them enthusiastically help. And once I got that into my brain, it, it just like, it really connected. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, after that, it was just a matter of showing people in the most approachable way, stories and studies that prove it. I like the way you said that. When you when you give smart people an evidence base, they really respond to that because yeah, yeah, yeah. nobody wants to be barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. Even if it feels right, you really want to see the evidence. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I always thought, you know, I never mentioned a PhD, you know, but everybody says it really helps to just throw it out there because data does yeah. help. That's right. It's credentializing. Yeah. So that's what that book means to me. And I'm going to say it's one of the things I'm most proud of in my life, other than my children. And it's not even my children. It's the children liking me. <laughs> <laughs> that's Anybody can make them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a nice accomplishment indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so they are 13 and 17 now. And I would say well, that even in that number. stage that they like you, that's even a bigger accomplishment. That's what I'm right? saying. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. But I think secondly, this book, because it wraps up the best of everything I know in a way that I'm proud of. I'm proud to give that to people because I find it to be a, not a fun read, but like an extremely easy, engaging read. You know, you still yeah. might not call it like a summer read. It might not be called fun, like, but, but it's, it's not, the it's best not really work. The draw, it's not really uh, the, the hard scientific part. It's really accessible. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, thanks for bringing it up. I, it's been a joy. Yeah. You know, one of the things, there are two things I love. First, I, with something I read and I think it's amazing, I'm still thinking, okay, I think it's amazing, but I want to see it in work in reality. So I like to experiment with it. But one of the things that really clicked in my head was something that you call the learned helpless, helplessness. Because I'm someone, I'm not proud of it, but I'm someone who sometimes easily judges other people. So when I hear, you know, a lot of people are not happy at their work. And when I hear people talk about that, I too, too fast, I think, come on, guys. You know, just create your own job. Snap blah, blah, out blah. of it. I snap out of it. Thank you. But then I read about learned helplessness and that really helped me to be, you know, mm -hmm. more understanding of the context and even the biology of it. Can yeah. you elaborate a little about learned helplessness? Absolutely. I'll tell you where it came from is very dark and very mean. It's not nice at all. But, you know, Martin Seligman and his research team in the um, psychology department, when he was working on his PhD, this is back in the uh, University of Pennsylvania, He's still there, by the way, <laughs> you know, whatever, 40 years later, 50 years later, he's still there as a professor. But anyway, when he was a PhD student, he just started doing this work on these dogs where you'd kind of give them a pretty easy hurdle to jump over and then you would shock them quite painfully and they would jump over. They'd figure it out. All the dogs figured it out. But then he'd shock the other side and he had to jump back. And he, he wasn't doing this like for giggles. You know, he was doing this to learn about learning. yeah. yeah, yeah. But then the really mean part is he would shock both sides and the dog would jump back and forth over this hurdle and then realize this is useless. Like no matter what I, it's not like cognitively they would know that. Yeah. What they would learn is that there's no way out. 
And th- then this is the worst part. They would lay down and take it. They would capitulate. Yeah. And it turns out, I mean, that was a really important finding. Nobody had really thought that that, nobody had thought that up before. And yeah. so Martin Seligman that came up with this and, and then since then, there's 30 years, 40 years of evidence that it happens to most animals, including the human animal. And some of the saddest things, it actually gives me chills, it's so sad, is when people develop a true sense of learned helplessness, life doesn't really feel like it's worth doing anymore. And they just shut off. Yeah. They literally, they just Apathy, get right? It. Yeah. And that's really sad. So that's a form of depression. Yeah. And just because a new leader, okay, so now let's put it in the context of work. If you have somebody that comes out of university and they're full of ideas and energy and they think like they're smart and then they go into a company where they're given a tiny repetitive task that they have to do it exactly that way. And then if they don't do it that way, they get punished. You know, they get shocked, so to speak. And then once or twice they see like, well, you don't know because you're way up there. Like I'm actually talking to the customers and I need to do it this way if I want to be effective. So they do something that's innovative and then they <laughs> get punished. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, oh, you know, they're 21, 22 years old. Like, oh, um, oh, I, I was trying to help. Okay. <laughs> and then they do it one more time. They try to help again. They get another smack and they realize like, oh no, like, I just have to do this thing. This, even if it's wrong, I just have to do it because yeah. it's the process. And they just shut off. Um, they shut off the, you know, this best part of their brain essentially. And they get through work eight, 10 hours a day. They just, yeah. they, they see it. I call it the commute to the weekend. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a nice analogy. Yeah. The work just becomes a way of getting through to Saturday. Yeah. Almost Friday. Woohoo. <sighs> Yeah, that's very depressing. That's depressing. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, um, I know that I'm still so in tune with this because, again, I, I have that index. I'm so, I vibrate so much that, like, when I say things or know things are true, I kind of, my hair goes up on my arms. And same. I, I talk about goosebumps every time. <laughs> it's like how I know I'm saying is true. Yeah. At least true to me, right? That really it's means something to me. To me. Yeah. <laughs> it's very inspiring to me how much that bothers me. Yeah. And so in some ways that learned helplessness does help us understand as leaders how you can't just show up in a, say you have 200 people that have been punished for 15 years. And by punished, I mean, anytime they try something that's not pre-validated and given to them as a script, they're going to get hurt. If you take people that have been treated that way for 20 years and then you come in as like the happy leader and you're like no no try things be agile experiment they're like you know f you like (laughs) i've seen this movie (laughs) it doesn't end well i've been kicked before (laughs) so yeah yeah, that's that's what we're often trying to overcome with these big organizational transformations is it's not that the ideas aren't good it's just that it demands people to wake up and be proactive and they don't think they want that yeah even though the evidence is clear that if you can get them to do that their lives are better and they like work more but it could take a year as you well know it could take a year just to get them to start trusting and opening to to me i think that that was the the sort of the holy grail that when i one of the exercises you mentioned is the best self and as I said, right, I like to experiment with stuff before I sort of really believe it. <laughs> uh, 
and I had the opportunity to experiment with it in, in different countries even. But to me, the, the first time I experimented was with a team that had been also in this culture of, you know, just tell me what to do for five years to make it a little black and white. But the goosebumps to me uh, became also because it, it took only one or two sessions with them to light their eyes back up. Right? So even if you have a history of, I don't know how many years of, you know, okay, I'm being told what to do, you get them energized so fast. I mean, it has to be an authentic story. Yeah. But I think that's, that was the amazing part that you have a few exercises you mentioned also in the book. And if you just do this, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a 10-year culture program thing. That's right. And it doesn't even have to be very expensive. I mean, the funny yeah. thing is most of the, this part of the brain is there waiting to serve. It's not that you have to invent it. Yeah. And so the trick is like, how do you trigger it? And most of the methods are not expensive. It, it's um, with that best self, there's, there's lots of different ways to go about doing it. How can you tell just a little bit more how, what type of an exercise did you, did you just have them write about themselves at their best? Or did you have them share that with each other? Or how did you um, operationalize it? Yeah, it was a mix. So the context we made was about, hey, we really want to empower you. We want to become more human centric. So that's why, you know, explaining why we do the best self exercise. And I made it sort of fun, right? So we, we created the whole theme. So in this case, it was for Randstad. And the program was called Customer Delight. And we created what we've called Customer Delight Angels. No, yeah, yeah. You know, and whether it's angels or just make it a fun theme. So when they walked in the room, I already had printed out posters with their picture and you're just an aureole, just some fun angel stuff. And then I put an empty hashtag under it. And in the exercise, I asked them, hey, take five minutes to think back of a situation, personal or work-related, when you really felt, oh my God, you know, this is who I'm supposed to be. And that's still sometimes vague. So I said, just remember a time when you couldn't wait to run home you know, and tell your partner, oh my, and I'm getting goosebumps yeah. now again I myself. Um, and it just take five minutes. And then we, let's say the group was 25 people. And then they shared it individually. And at, at the end, when somebody had shared a story, together we would brainstorm, okay, hearing your story, I think your hashtag would be, um, hashtag makes other people shine. And then we asked them, right? write down your hashtag beneath your picture. And every time I got goosebumps from the stories because they, we got amazing stories about their purpose. But also you can really feel the energy in the room just change completely. Yeah. How many people were in that room? In that room, it was often a group of 25 people. Yeah. So between 10 or 25, yeah. it doesn't seem to matter how big the group is. It's, really it just, it's a universal principle, I think. I think my little hashtag would be put more living into life. I think that's what my, that seems to be the thing that is the overarching um, theme or drive for me. And I mean, like in my, not only just at work, but also like yeah, in my personal In general. Life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what would yours be? Yeah. I was thinking, you know, if I would have to uh, share my best self, because I think that time I had the hashtag, solves complex puzzles yeah but then it's missing um you know in, when corona hit i was thinking what can i do you know with my knowledge to bring to the world as little as possible 
And I created something called the Experience Game Week. Yeah. And it had the, all the facets, you know, being creative, designing something new, but mostly getting so many excited people, you know, that were inspired, had a smile on their face, mixing knowledge and fun. Yeah. I think that whole mix is sort of the essence of what I really like to do. Yeah. What I really like about this, I know we'll move to your other questions, but just a quick response. What I really enjoy about this exercise and the way that you did it, the way that you operationalized it, is that you allowed other people to reflect back what they heard and what they're feeling. And in my own research, that are, there appears to be a value in that. Because when we just go off and cogitate and ruminate on what we think, it's not that that's not valid. Yeah, it's yeah. just that it's incomplete. And the idea of having 15, 20 people, maybe who know you, you know, that's also a very interesting piece of the puzzle yeah. to the extent that you work together, they watch you, they've seen you at your best. So for them to listen and hear what you're saying and then reflect in what they feel is invaluable. And it also is part of owning it or believing it because it validates it. So, you know, the, we, we create these best self reports um, when the executives yeah. come in and, you know, those are sometimes from as many as 15 different people in your life, family, friends, you know, colleagues and mentors. Yeah. And the idea that the idea that it objectifies it or almost back to data, it almost gives it a evidence validation evidentiary. Yeah. That's really exciting to me, actually. And I think what's interesting, so every time when I do this, in the first, so the first, let's say two or three people, everybody sort of, you know, at the end to think of the hashtag is sort of waiting and looking at me to think of a hashtag. So I, I you know, after the second one through, I said, I, I'm waiting. I said, come on, guys, you can think of a nice hashtag. And then really it starts, you know, and it's really their energy and it's super cool. Is it hard for you to not just give it? Like, is it hard for you to, to wait? <laughs> well, by now I'm 42, Dan. So I've learned a lot in my last 20 years. So it would definitely have been hard. But now I know and see the effect of, you know, waiting and not saying it. So that absolutely makes it easy to shut up and just give them their space. Nice, nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me just double check because I think I had another, sure. oh, yeah. the, the other thing I really love to discuss is transformation. It's a super vague and big subject. And when I transform it a little to my contact, right? Customer and employee experience. There are many studies for the last 10 years that customer experience is a top priority for the CIOs, right? 85% says, yes, this is my top three priority. That same decade, the percentage of CX leaders has been stable between four and 8%. Mm. So my puzzle, I think is also a little your puzzle, is if, and we don't have all the answers, but there's a lot of part of the answers available. Yeah. As you said, the best self is super relevant to maybe completely change your onboarding and just focus on getting the energy activated but still so many organizations are not doing the onboarding with the best self or are still not in the top of CX. So I would just like to pick your brain. What are maybe you and I doing wrong in spreading the word or what are we not seeing? Do you have any philosophy of why is it so hard for companies to get through to that transformation? Mm -hmm. 
Well, just a couple of thoughts about that. One of them is just to think about organizations in the context of big organizations and just for us all to remember to give ourselves a little bit of a break because when we invented them, you know, when we invented not 20 person organizations in a small village, but 20,000 person organizations across 15 countries, that scale really came with some necessary um, attributes. And, you know, one of those is to break the work into small bits. One of those is to de-individuate people, make them interchangeable. Um, To make them hyper-specialized meant very repetitive tasks. And we still, by and large, have to think of it that way. It's just that now that the world's changing so fast, that's not adaptive anymore. That we seem to have outgrown a static large organization. And yet we don't know how to let it be loose. Like right now, by the way, I know that I'm not solving the problem. I'm just trying to help us remember why. (laughs) Understand it. Yeah. And, And also like to be a little bit, empathetic with ourselves like with you have a little compassion with ourselves because we're trying to do something that we it's like we wired a system that now we need it to do something else but we didn't change all the wiring like here's what i really mean like just to go down another level of detail what we really need people to do today is adapt based on their own skills and their own interests to help the organization without being told but we pretty much still hire people in the same way for a specific role. And then we give them a specific job description. And then we give them the metrics that mean that they're winning. And if they don't hit those metrics, we punish them and we'll even ostracize them and make them like into organizational losers and then we'll fire them. And so the system is not really facilitating it yet. Yeah. We, 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 and I'm, I'm with me too. We don't necessarily know how to let people craft their jobs around their strengths and then take risks and try to solve problems without knowing if it'll work. We, we haven't set that system up yet. It's yeah. just what we need, but we're, it's almost like we're trying to make a curved cut with a straight saw. Yeah. And so I don't, I mean, the book is full of ways to change the organization. And in my mind, people like you have a track record of making it so. We, we know that this is possible, but I will say it's not likely. And I don't think even very in tune companies, companies that really get it, I don't think it's been easy for them to transform this philosophy about humans that undergirds big companies like uh you know as a just to have some fun and then i think it'd be great if you shared something that you've learned i think it would be great for listeners to hear from your own mouth because at the end of the day i'm just an academic you know i i don't do this stuff enough (laughs) i might have the science but i don't have the practical experience as much but like when i look at what's happened at microsoft i don't i've never worked there but i've studied them a bit Somehow, is it Sat- Satya Nadelli? He's the CEO, I think. When he came in, he had this overriding thought that we were a know-it-all organization. And the point was each leader to be the master of his or her universe and to know everything about everything and then the script and plan it and like kind of an execution company. Yeah. 
And what he saw is we need to be a learn-it-all organization where we admit that we don't know. And a leader's job is not to know, it's to help know, it's to help learn. And the only way we can learn is to try and experiment. And um, that has created a very large scale transformation that has changed how the company works. And I mean, I think the results are starting to really be strong. It's funny, just as an aside, Totally personal. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Two years ago, three years ago, when I really started learning about all this about Microsoft, I bought a lot of stock. <laughs> and now, and now? <laughs> oh my God. It's been such, <laughs> it is, it's such a ride. I mean, it is just incredible what has happened in this company. It's like, it's almost like you can't stop it. Sometimes it'll go up three or four. Sell them, sell them, Dan. Now you're on the high. (laughs) Well, it it is funny how um, I did have a hope. I mean, you never know about it. It's just stock and you never can tell. I have the same experiment with Bitcoins, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Bitcoin. (laughs) Okay. How about about over to you, though? Um, And then maybe we don't want to make this about you and you can just defer. But I think if I were listening to this podcast, I would love to hear from somebody who does this for a living, somebody who's on the equivalent of the insider track. Yeah, yeah. What do you think makes this so, it's still very unlikely that a company will even get it, much less do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I've been thinking about it a lot lately. And I think, I think the, one of the keys is that it needs so many different variables to come together at the same time. As for example, with my way of finding the drivers of customers and employees, that's one piece of the puzzle that really connects back to purpose, but hard measurable data. Then you get to the stage, okay, how am I going to energize everybody to actually do something with the results? Okay, we create delight angels, we create whatever fun theme we can think of. Then we get to the stage, okay, as you mentioned already, how are we steering the company? And is it aligned with what we need? We have digital transformation. Is that aligned with everything else that we've been seeing? So I think you need so many different uh, elements of the puzzle to click together at the same time. Same time. With you know a lot of different people having different opinions, that it takes, I think, a sort of very smart but also organic roadmap. I don't think you can plan. Okay, in one year we're going to do a transformation. I don't see that happening. I really love the organic. Let's start with one journey, one driver, one team. And we see, you know, timing is everything alive. You've just helped me remember something I've stumbled on a number of times and we should talk about really briefly. Even the budgeting process of an organization is allergic to agile. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the way we have built budgets are around, well, what do you need? Well, what are you going to do? I don't know. We'll see when we get there. That that doesn't work for accounting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and by the way, if you spend less this year, you'll get less budget next year. (laughs) Again, it's not really our fault because predictability used to be much more possible. You know, now it's hard to predict next month. You know, it's, the idea that you'd have a five-year strategy is kind of laughable now. Like, yeah, so the, key, the, key that, the key that you need to change now is the speed of the outside world 
changing. Right? I think if that was not moving so fast, you could still be okay with your five-year plan. That's it. Yeah. I'm befuddled by it. I, I mean, I don't think that's, that's a nice word. Can you I'm elaborate befuddled. on what does befuddled mean? Sort of well, puzzled by I'm it? Confused. Okay. I'm confused. That's probably just another word. I, I, I wish that I had like a better understanding of how to help organizations migrate toward agile. And by agile, yeah. I don't mean it in the buzzwordy kind of way yeah, of yeah. like a computer system, a way of programming. No, I really flexible flexible and just always adapting so yep. that I teach organizational change here at London Business School and leading change is one of the sort of bestsellers and that, you know it's a program that we run used to run three times a year <laughs> and I think that the biggest change I've seen in change is that you can't see it as a transformation anymore it's not a thing that you undergo and then get back to normal or like there's it's just no normal journey. yeah it's, it's just it is it's more like a culture where you're constantly excited and enthusiastic about what can we do today in my job to be a little more relevant. Yeah. And then you get 20,000 people thinking that way yeah. and your organization unstrategically moves toward better solutions. And I just, what I need to, what it befuddles me is what percentage of leaders actively resist that because they want the five-year plan with a budget. Yeah. They want goals that are projected. They want to pay for performance. Yeah. And that's nice. I, 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 I um, acknowledge that would be nice. Yeah. It's just so deeply unrealistic. Yeah. And they've been super successful so far with it. So who are we to judge, right? It's true. Yeah. A lot of these people are in the 30th year of their career. And, yeah. you know, I'm old too now. <laughs> It's like when I was taught how to do change, and by the way, that's in the 90s I was yeah. taught that. In the early 90s I was taught this. You would think in terms of three-year rollouts. Like yeah. literally, you would build budgets for three years. Now, like if you have a three-year budget, in two years, you're going to have 55 changes. <laughs> like, <you can't... laughs> I think that's, that's a great... Uh, I, I was thinking even maybe doing a new podcast about it. Who are the true leaders? Because more and more... I'm convinced that if we can activate the employees, they are the ones that are able to sort of push back and help transform leadership instead of everybody saying, hey, if we don't have sponsorship from leadership, it's not going to happen. I'm not sure if I'm convinced that that's, uh, you need somebody to sponsor and say, okay, go ahead. But I think the, the, the energy and the power from the employees is much, much bigger. You and I are very aligned on this. And I don't know if you want to use these words or not, but this is where I got interested in this concept of humble leadership, oh, yeah. servant leadership. Yeah. And for me, if I just had to summarize it really quickly, there is this old style leadership that I was taught and that I used to teach. I think MBA schools, by the way, are one of the biggest problems. I think they're still really, teaching it that way. Unfortunately, I mean, I'm not, God no, but I was even just seven or eight years ago. Yeah. Seven or eight years ago, certainly 10 years ago, I was teaching it this way where what a leader has to do is figure out where we're going and then build a two or three year plan to bring people toward that. And so they need to sort of have the answers. And in some ways, their job was to have the answer and then kind of to convince people to follow them, to inspire people to follow them. That was almost like the way. And what you're saying really resonates with me right now where a humble leader says, 
I don't have all the answers, but you people are really smart. Yeah. And if I can get you to buy into the mission, if I can develop some passion for the outcome that we're trying to get to, I don't need to have the answer, but I can open up resources to help you explore how to get there. Yeah. Tell me what you guys need. I'll, I'll remove roadblocks. I'll take yeah. off bottlenecks. I'll, and um, again, I'll, I've seen this work again and again and again. I'm pretty sure this works, yeah. but many, many, many leaders, when I bring this up and try to teach this style, they're very resistant. Yeah. And you know what? Some of it is because they want the trappings of yeah, they need control, right? It's a false sense of control. They love even the, the physical trappings of like the big office, the nice car. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, want, they want people bowing and just <laughs> giving them the, the genuflection. Oh, they, holy one. <laughs> it's like a high. And they think, by the way, they think they've earned that. And so in their mind, they worked 20 years to get to this. And now you're telling me uh, I have to give all the power away. I want the power. <laughs> what a sucky training this is then. <laughs> this, yeah, this training is terrible. You're telling me how to give away power. I want to, I want to get power. <laughs> Where's the professor that teaches me how to get Exactly. The power? Where can I sign up for that class? <laughs> so I, anyway, right now what we're doing is mostly, you know, right now you and I are sort of mostly reiterating rather than solving, but it does help put into sharp contrast how different the demands on a leader are today and how threatening those yep. demands are. And again, for um, Satya Nadelli to say, a learn-it-all organization means leaders don't have to know. They have to help. Yeah. That's pretty profound. Yeah. It's not just him, obviously. And I think, I mean, again, you can talk a little bit about Randstad because I, you know, I've worked with a lot of leaders over a lot of years now, and I'm inspired by what you're able to accomplish. And I, I mean, as you know, uh, my next book um, is going to be something like Alive at Scale. Yeah. And it is about transforming whole organizations and not just collections of teams, you know, 20 people here and 20 people there. No, no. How do we change 20,000 people? And part of why we want to include um, Ranzdat in so deeply is because we think that you fairly quickly have evolved. So I don't know if there's anything, I mean, it's your own podcast, so you may not want to say, but I could imagine <laughs> you um, just, you could pick one thing about it that you would highlight for listeners that aren't out there doing it in the trenches. You know what I mean? If you wanted to or not, you know, whatever works. Yeah. I'm just thinking the, the one thing is always a challenge, yes. <laughs> but I think, I think that the, the key is, I think the mix, I think it's the mix of finding from outside in what truly matters. So at the driver methodology, I developed based on my PhD in combination with, everything that you are saying in your book. So how purpose-driven, get everybody energized. I think the combination of those two, I feel is a very strong combination. Yeah, yeah that's really nice. And that is one of my, I would say weaknesses because I'm, I'm not as operational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of times the ability to find those empirical drivers. I mean, I certainly know how to do it because I do research. And I yep. love it. But your dependent variable as you go into a company is like, 
how do we make customers happier or how do we sell more or how do we, whatever, you know, whatever that dependent variable yep. is, there are answers that yep. can guide your strategy. Yeah. And that is really, really vital and important, isn't it? Yeah. And what you mentioned, guide is literally what I just wrote about digital transformation. I literally said, use the drivers for your, from your customers and employees as your compass for digital transformation. That's it. Yeah. There's one last thing um, that I want to talk about a little bit, and you mentioned it a couple of times, so I think you might want me to talk about it. Oh, take it away. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's something around the word um, purpose and impact. Ah, yeah. yeah. And what I, I just, I can put it out real briefly. It's a, for me, it was a real stumbling moment for me where I stumbled into it, I believe, a truth. And so I didn't even know this three to five years ago. And what it is, is when loads of companies and loads of leaders talk about mission and when they talk about impact and we talk about purpose, they're often quite ephemeral. They're up at the level of like Lego saying that we build people's children's minds. Yeah, or, super abstract. Yeah, it's very abstract. And people, what I've learned, that doesn't activate this part of the brain because it's not an emotional reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And that, that's a great and I believe true insight. Yeah. I think maybe yeah. now, now you're mentioning this, maybe that's also why the best self is so powerful because you're connecting it to your personal purpose. I'm just thinking this, I'm just realizing this now. Absolutely. And I believe strongly that most leaders are missing that insight. And so they're trying to build purpose at the level of like, you know, Rabobank saying banking for food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you have any given employee that runs, you know, reporting on spreadsheets on Friday saying like, I what does bank, that mean to me? I don't bank for food. Like <laughs> I eat, you know, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. What we're, There's a farmer involved somewhere in my journey. <laughs> so um, what I've really had some luck and success in is helping leaders, but also teams of people personalize the purpose. And all that really means is thinking hard about the tasks in their job and saying, who do they affect? And then you know, why do you do them? Why, what does that task do? And I know that sounds so obvious, but a lot of times it's like, well, because I have to, it's a job description. It's like that narrative is what's unacceptable yeah. in today's world. Like that's not the right narrative. So if, for instance, as Dan Cable, I do a lot of like grading of tests. Yes, yes. <laughs> so then the question is, well, why do you do all that grading? It's like, well, I have to give them feedback. It's like, okay, that's not very inspiring. Yeah. Is there anything about grading? Because by the way, I don't like it. It's repetitive, it's boring, and I, I wish I didn't have to do it, but it yeah. is part of the job. And so the more I tell myself that narrative of, oh, I have to, the less I like it. Yeah. But if you do, just play the game and say, well, wait a minute, what, why, what's a better story that I could tell myself? It's like, well, giving people feedback is important. Like that's their effort. That's their energy. It's important to give them feedback. It's like, okay, ask the question again. Like, why do you think that's important to give them feedback? And then yeah. they might say like, well, helps them get better. And then you say, exactly. well, why do you care if they get better? And what they can I help have, you change the world then. You get there. <laughs> You, you eventually get to the point where it's like, well, if I do a really good job with this, they'll go be better leaders and change the world. So, but I mean, that story was not on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I think it's a leader's job to not give people their purpose, but to help them find it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, for me, 
that wasn't something you and I had discussed yet, but I actually think it is mission critical to yeah, this whole true. story. If you can't help people personalize the purpose, then it lives as a cognitive idea rather than an emotionally held yeah. truth for somebody. And therefore you're not triggering that part of the brain, which yeah. you, you, you have to do if you want excitement, enthusiasm, commitment, you know? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I think you're very good at doing that. I actually think- oh, Thank you, Dan, thank your... you, Dan. <laughs> I'm just, just a little conscious of time. Sure. So maybe as, as a wrap up, one final question. If there would be one thing that you would really love our listeners to click having heard the story today, what was the one thing that you would share with them? I'm gonna to put together two things, but it's still gonna kind of sound like one. <laughs> sure, go ahead, be creative. I have to, I have to. <laughs> the first thing is very obvious, but just to remember that human life is something that can be a heaven or a hell depending on what emotions you activate. And then the second thing, which is very connected though, yeah. is if you want the organization to thrive, then the people have to thrive. So they're very connected ideas. Yeah. And neither of those are common in my experience. I, I still feel, I know we started on this in the nineties with the whole, you know, put the employee first. And, but I, I still think that most leaders and most organizations start with the assumption that you come up with goals and you give people frameworks and those turn into job descriptions and then you evaluate them. Yeah. And I don't think we've yet gotten to the point of starting with people have this part of the brain. It can be triggered. When you trigger this part of the brain, they experience more exploration, innovation, creativity. Yeah. I don't think we're yet starting there and then building to the organization's success. Yeah. I think making the final link to COVID and everybody talking about the new normal, I think this should become the new normal for companies, right? It's a great goal. Yeah. It's a great goal. And then what I love about it is if we go this route, then the journey really becomes the reward, kind of like what you're going through right now. It's the journey of leading is putting more living into life. And then we'll get to the outcome. The outcome takes yeah. care of itself. If you have an engaged army of helpers yeah. who every day are trying to solve the organization's problems, you're going to do well. Yeah. <laughs> it's not possible to not do well then. Almost. <laughs> yeah. Almost. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really an engaging conversation though. Yeah. Well, super thanks, Dan. Yeah. It's always a big pleasure to talk to you. Good. We're all hyper energizing each other. <laughs> we both are, uh, we are a sort of mirror set up to a mirror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Your um, amazing I'm work. Really happy to chat with you about this. And, uh, you know, I hope that you have some success with it. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.